Um, okay, I also sent it to you. Um, all right, let's go back to the Merchant Venice. The question that we asked a couple of days ago, which is, what's the third ring? Anyone know yet? You can't, <laughs> one, two, yeah. So there's Nerissa's ring, as it's called. Um, that is the ring that Nerissa gives to Gradiano, and then there's her metaphorical ring, but that's, they're both. Uh, Gradiano, when he says, I'll fear no other thing, so Sora is keeping safe Nerissa's ring. Um, it's a joke, which means he's referring with that term literally to the ring that she gave him and that he gave back to her without knowing it was her. We didn't see that happen. We just know that it happened at the same time as Portia got the ring from Vesania. So those are two rings. Nerissa's ring, whether you want to treat it as metaphorical or literal, are that's one ring. Portia's ring is the second ring. But it's a three-ring circus. So what's the third ring? Is Do you know? Also Jessica's turquoise ring? Yes. Whose turquoise? Shylock's. Right. Does everyone remember that ring? Joseph, you're looking like he suddenly remembered it? Yeah. So what is it? He was his mom's? Um, no. No. Not his mom's. Close, but no cigar. Do you know that cigars, you probably don't know this about cigars. Any of you smoke cigars? Cigars come into and out of fashion like every 10 years. So every 10 years or so, you can walk down the streets of a big city, and there are um, pompous men smoking big cigars. And they kind of stink up the place. And then people start vaping, and it's all much better. And then they go back to cigars. But a uh, thing about cigars, if you ever read literature about cigars, which sometimes you do, because sometimes cigars are cigars, if you ever read literature about cigars, Cigars have, and this is a cool thing when I was a kid, my grandfather smoked cigars. Um, they have little bands on them. Do you know about this? Little paper bands on them? And do you know why they're there? What? Well, so it's the brand, it's the kind of tobacco. If you manage to get a Cuban cigar, it'll say that it's a Cuban cigar. If it's a, if it's a Dominican cigar with Cuban tobacco leaves, that's a great thing. But there's a particular thing that that, that, that that paper ring is doing for every cigar. It's not only a brand name, but it's also measuring the, the circumference of the cigar. That is, how fat it is. So you can, so the rings are, will actually have little, little markers to show how fat the cigar is, and that way you're not being cheated by having a cigar that claims to be fat but is actually lacking in tobacco. So that's a cigar ring. It's not what Shakespeare's thinking of, but there it is. So I thought you would want to know. It's like money, because everything's like money, really. Okay, so not from, Shylock doesn't get it from his mother, but from his sibling? His wife. His wife, yes, whose name is? Anyone remember? Leah. Leah. Who's Leah biblically? Jacob. No, the wife of Jacob. 
Um, which wife of Jacob, you the may first ask? The wife that he doesn't like very much. The first wife whom he doesn't like all that much, at least not the one that he thought he was working for when he worked in order to get himself a wife. Do people know this story? Were you just looking it up, or do you know it? I know it. Okay, so tell the story. So, Jacob, um, after he steals his brother's birthright, or oh, tricks his brother fair. into... Yes, tricks his dad into giving him his brother's birthright. He's afraid that he's going to get, you know, killed. So he runs away to his mother's uncle. Yeah. Um, and falls in love with one of his daughters, but... Named. Named Rachel. Named Rachel. But the issue is that Rachel is his younger daughter. So he... So the guy's name is Laban, just so... Yeah. So you know. Go on. So... Laban's like... We're not going to marry Rachel before Leah gets married. And apparently, Leah is not particularly attractive, so they have some trouble doing that. Um, it's what the story says. I'm not making that up. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jacob says that he'll work for seven years uh, for Laban to marry Rachel. And then what happens? So the deal is he will get Rachel after working for seven years. So notice that a woman here is being treated as payment, which is something that we talked about a little bit already. She will be the payment for his seven years' labor. Yeah. And so he works for seven years, and then... It's their wedding night. Yeah, it's their wedding night. It's dark. And it's dark. So they switch out Rachel for Leah, and so he consummates the marriage with Leah... Not unknowingly, and so he's very mad about this, and says, and basically works another seven years for Rachel's head as well. Yeah, so so um, polygamy was not a sin, as Dryden puts it in his great poem, Absalom and Achitophel. Um, as you probably know from your biblical reading, all the patriarchs had many wives, and that's also why <coughs> in Mormonism there's polygamy, because it's a return to a biblical view of sexual law, of laws of marriage. So first he marries Leah, although he thinks he's marrying Rachel, and then he marries Rachel. What is somehow good payback? So, so Ian began by telling us how Jacob tricked his father into giving him his brother's birthright. His brother's, any, people remember his brother's name? Jacob so. and Esau. Esau, I, I like that you gave the Hebrew pronunciation. Esau is the Hebrew pronunciation. Esau is what he's usually called in English and what Shakespeare would have called him. So Jacob and Esau, is this familiar to people? Do you ever read I Saw Esau? No? It's a, it's, it's a, um, all right, it's a kid's book. Um, so how does Jacob get Esau's birthright? Jacob and Esau are twins. Do people know this? Is this a familiar story to people? Vaguely familiar? Anyone for whom it's not at all familiar? Yes, okay. Are you shaking your head it is or it's not? Yeah, I have no idea. All right. So in the beginning... The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Shortly thereafter, there were a lot of idolaters in the world, 
And what idolatry is, is the worship of material things as though they are living, as though they are godlike, as though they have the power of life and death and give life because they are more full of life than we are. So that's what idolatry is. And the idea of idolatry will eventually come into various critiques of the idea of money. So there is the son of an idol maker who thinks that idols are stupid and he destroys all his father's idols. This is not actually in Genesis, but it's in the oral tradition that goes along with Genesis, and his name is Avram, and he destroys all his father's idols. And then one day, the true God speaks to him simply as a voice and renames him Abraham and says that he will be the father not only of one, but of several great peoples. And he has a son named Isaac. He also has a son named, anyone know his other son's name? Call me. Ishmael. Ishmael. So the two sources of the great peoples who are going to descend from Abraham, and this is where we get the idea of the Abrahamic religions, are Esau, excuse me, are Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac is then the forefather of the children of Israel, and why they're called the children of Israel, we'll get to in a minute. And um, Ishmael is the forefather of whom? I think maybe even named after him, although I'm not sure about that, at least, but the pun is certainly there, of Islam. So Ishmael is, the descendants of Ishmael will become the Islamic, the founders of Islam and Muhammad is a descendant of Ishmael. So source of two great peoples, Ishmael and Israel. And um, Isaac, the son of Abraham, has twins. And those twins are Jacob and Esau. And the question, who is born first, seems to be answered according to the Bible that Esau is born first. He's the first of the two twins that are born and his brother Jacob is born right after him. However, there is, again, in the oral tradition, there is an idea that Jacob started popping out first, and then Esau managed to get out, but Jacob tried to pull him back. So they were fighting even in the womb, is the idea. Anyhow, they're twins, but Esau is regarded as the firstborn. Esau is an hairy man, as Monty Python likes to put it, and Jacob is not. And Esau really likes hunting, and, and he's, he's a manly man. And Jacob is contemplative and stays home. And Isaac prefers his firstborn Esau, partly because he's his firstborn, but Jacob's mother prefers Jacob. So again, there are various stories that are supposed to make this fair, but when Isaac is old, he's blind. And when he's blind, he realizes he's dying. And he now wants to give his blessing to his firstborn son, Esau. And giving that blessing, here you should think a little bit about Marcel Mauss and the gift. Because it's not what we mean when we give someone a blessing, when we say, God bless you. You just sneezed, God bless you. In other words, it's not something that is... Um, well-wishing. It's actually 
a kind of magic is felt to be a kind of magic, a kind of spiritual magic or a kind of spiritual substance, which there is one of. So Isaac can bless one child and only one, and he will bless his firstborn, who is going to therefore be the person from whom the forefather ship, starting with Abraham and going through Isaac, will go down the generations. However, Isaac's mother, I'm, excuse me, Jacob's mother, Jacob and Esau's mother, would prefer Jacob to get the blessing. And so what she does is she says, you've read the Odyssey, right? Which she doesn't really say. So do you remember how Odysseus escapes from the Cyclops? He puts on a sheepskin over his head, and the Cyclops, who is blind, just like your father, wants to make sure that the, that the Greeks who are trapped in his cave don't escape because he's eating them every day. And, um, but he wants his sheep to go out and graze, so every time anything tries to leave the cave, he feels whether it's got sheep curls on top. And if it does, he lets it go. So Odysseus and all his men put on sheepskin, and, and the Cyclops thinks that they are sheep who are leaving the cave rather than men, and Odysseus and his men escape. One reason I mention that is because Odysseus and Jacob are both trickster heroes, and the trickster is a very interesting figure universally in literature. Tricksters are always ambiguous figures. We, we, we root them on because they're, they're tricky, and it's great, and some of those tricks are wonderful, but some of those tricks are terrible. The trickster in, in Norse mythology is Loki. Loki, and Loki is an iffy figure. But at any rate, both Odysseus and Jacob are tricksters. And so Odysseus and his men get away through this trick in the same way what Isaac, what Jacob does is he puts on a pelt over his head and he goes to his father and says, it is I, Esau, here for my blessing. And his father says, Esau, you don't really sound like Esau. Come here, let me feel your hair. So he comes over and he feels his hair and it's this pelt and he says, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hair is the hair of Esau. And so he gives him his blessing. And then a little while later, Esau comes in and says, Dad, I'm here for my blessing. And Isaac says, oops. And that it's too late. And Esau is really unhappy about this. And remember, Esau is the manly man. That is, he is um, good with violence, good with hunting, good with um, the arts of war. So Jacob runs away. So he's got the blessing, but the good that it does him is simply that he runs away. It's a spiritual blessing. He's now going to be carrying the torch, but right now he carries the torch far away. Very famously, he has a dream while he's on his way away from, from Isaac and away from his brother Esau, and he dreams of angels going up and down a ladder. So that's the famous moment of Jacob's dream. He then gets to, we, this is where you came in, he gets to Laban, he sees, he sees Rachel, he falls in love with her, he agrees that she'll be payment for seven years of work, 
and then he gets tricked. Now, why is it right and appropriate that he should be tricked? It's karma. It's karma, exactly. A lot of people don't know that's a Hebrew word. They don't know it because it isn't. But it's karma. That is, what he did to his father, his Laban now does to him, his uncle does to him, which is he can't see, he is um, proceeds by feel, so to speak, and he consummates a marriage with the wrong woman, as far as he's concerned, the wrong woman, because what's happened, what he has done to his father, his uncle has now done to him. And so now he is married to the wrong woman. He agrees to work for another seven years, and eventually he has a second wife, Rachel. And um, it's probably a good thing because, because Rachel, like his grandmother Sarah, doesn't seem to be fertile, whereas Leah is. So Leah is the mother of most of the tribes of Israel. Um, but uh, Jacob has 12 children, and Leah's the mother of 10 of them. And eventually, late in life, Rachel has children. So that, that's the story, and that's where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. It's the 12 children of Jacob. Jacob is, just to finish the story, because this is actually really important for King Lear, at least in my reading of King Lear, after those 14 years, and I think it's somewhat important for the Merchant of Venice as well, after those 14 years, Jacob decides to return home. And he is really successful now. He has, he, he has tricked his father-in-law in a way that Shylock describes. After his father-in-law has tricked him, he tricks him back. And the way he tricks him back is they agree to divide their, the sheep that are reproducing, ewes and rams are reproducing in a natural way, as they do. And they agree that they're going to split the offspring according to various characteristics that the offspring have. And what J Jacob does, you remember this from the play now, right? What, what Jacob does is, as a believer in Lamarckianism, he thinks that you can affect the offspring of, of a pregnant um, uh, uh, sheep by what you show her while, or what, what happens, what she's seeing while she's copulating. So when they agree that spotted sheep are going to be Jacob, Jacob's, he shows them spotted things while they're copulating. He just goes around and watches the sheep copulate and gives them images while they're doing it, and then this is all in the Bible. And uh, when they agree that he's going to get striped sheep, he shows them striped things. And then so he gets all the sheep. All of the sheep are belong to him. And um, so he has now tricked his father-in-law, and he's very wealthy. And so now he decides he's going to go home. And as he's going home, he gets to the River Jordan and crosses it with his family and with his manservants and his maidservants and his goats and ewes and rams and all his goods. And he hears that his brother Esau is marching to meet him with 300 men. And that doesn't sound so good because that's a lot of people when you basically just have your extended family and a lot of um, kind, a lot of, of domestic animals. So 
Then there's a very strange moment in the book of Genesis, which is after the description of how he crossed the River Jordan to the other side where his brother was marching towards the river with 300 men. There's a little hiccup. And then the story says, and Jacob sent his family and his servants and his possessions across the River Jordan. But suddenly he hasn't crossed. So first we get a verse that says he has crossed. Do people know the Bible contradicts itself a lot like this? Uh, the most famous example, which has given rise to a whole lot of really interesting secondary stories, is that in Genesis, God creates man in his own image. This is the way it goes. Do you remember how it goes? I just remember that this is like contradictory. Yeah, so it's in the image of, of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So that is the description of the creation of humanity, that God creates man or humanity in the image of God, male and female. So the first, so, so when humans are created, they're created ma male and female. So that's good. That's equal. That is a really good counter to any kind of religious sexism or sexism based on religion. But then a page later, God is talking to the first man, whose name is Adam, and he says, it's not good that this guy is alone. He needs a helper a helpmate in, um, in some translations, or a helpmeet, that is, someone who is appropriate as a helper to him. Kind of a servant to do the dishes and things like that. So he makes Adam fall asleep, takes out Adam's rib, forms it into a woman, and wakes Adam up and says, here's your helper, and Adam says she'll be called woman because she comes out of the side of man, and man is superior, and she will have to um, uh, obey the, the source of her creation, namely me. So that's the source of religious arguments for sexism and for male supremacy. So there are these two stories. Were those the ones you were thinking of, Andrea? Yeah. yeah, so two stories that seem to contradict each other. One is that, that male and female were created simultaneously, and then a page later we hear, no, the male was created, and then after a while God saw that he was lonely and created a female out of a part of the male, so the female is a part of the male. A female belongs, is, is subordinate to the male. Those are the two stories. And so... Obviously, the Bible always tells the truth, so the question is, how do you reconcile these two stories? Um, through interpretation, you do what we do. But <coughs> one reconciliation is, anyone know the wildest and um, most feminist reconciliation? So the first woman was not Eve, according to the Kabbalah. The first woman who was Adam's equal in every way and created simultaneously with Adam. Do you know? Starts with an I. Starts with an L. Yeah, Lilith. Lilith. Yeah. So that's why Lilith is, you will often hear the name Lilith as a feminist, um, in feminist contexts. So the Kabbalistic story is two women were, two 
beings were created, male and female, Adam and Lilith. And Lilith was Adam's first wife, and she was completely equal to him. And then the Kabbalah says that Adam complained to God because he just didn't think this was right. And what, in particular, what he complained about, you're really too young. You're not supposed to read Kabbalah until you're 35. But um, the, in particular, what he complained about was that Lilith demanded when they had sex, she wanted to be on top half the time. And Adam just thought this was wrong. This is what, what, what sex looked like. Um, it was men were supposed to be on top when you had sex. So Lilith's demand that that they have sex female superior half the time didn't sit well with Adam, so to speak. And he complained to God, and God said, "You're right," and banished Lilith. And then Lilith married Satan, and um, uh, under the name Samael, and she's the mother of all demons. And not only it gets wilder. Um, She's, she then becomes the reason that if you're a young man, she gives, she's scary um, not to masturbate. Because every time you masturbate, you get Lilith pregnant, and she gives birth to another demon. So all the demons in hell that will torture us if we die or if we do bad things, they all come because boys can't stop themselves from doing what they really shouldn't be doing. She is, but Lilith is a badass name. You, th- you think it sounds like Lily? Is that the problem? No, it's just like, it sounds like my grandmother. Like Patricia or something. <laughs> yeah. You know that names are always changing. Like Gertrude, that was a powerful name in Hamlet. Like, no, not Prudence. Prudence, Prudence is a, um, is a Puritan funny. name. I know, but it's a, it's a Puritan name and it's badass now, right? No. That's why you call yourself Prude. No? Why do you call yourself Prude? Uh, I mean, prudence is too many syllables. Is that why? And also, I'm not prudent, so it doesn't seem to fit yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> prudence, chastity, names like that are puritanical names. Um, I give up a Puritan vibe. <laughs> no, but they, were, they weren't names until the 17th century. Um, my favorite male Puritan name that no one is named anymore, but I really love it, is Preserved. <laughs> so that, that was a wishful name that someone gave their son. There were actually several people named Preserved. Um, so, were they Marmalade? Well, I'm just really glad that wasn't my first name because think of what people would do with it. <laughs> yes. So I'm very glad. Um, no, it means that they were saved from Satan. Oh. If they're preserved, they're saved. So the, the um, puritanical names are not, they may be in vogue, but they're never badass. Well, preserved might be a little bit badass. <laughs> um, Satan killer would be a good badass name. You have people named Preserved, and you got Preserved Fish. Yeah, oh my okay. God, it's a person. <laughs> Is that his name? There's someone named Preserved Fish? He's a shipping merchant. He's a what? A shipping merchant. Where? Uh, well, no, I mean, he died. But it was in New York City. When? Um, 1766 to Okay, so his parents, it's like Dusty Rhodes. Oh he was also a whaler at one point. 
whoa. So he was overcompensating, or maybe just, I don't know, he was doing something. Um, but it's like Dusty Rhodes and Kelly Green. There's a whole Wikipedia. He was married three times to come around. Wow. 21 years. Three times in 21 years. So it's like every seven years, like Jacob, hey, what a segue. So, <laughs> so Jacob then has sent everyone across, but he's back where he was. So this is another contradiction in the Bible, like the contradiction about the creation of the first woman. Now we have Jacob crosses the River Jordan, and then a verse later... He sends everyone else across, but he hasn't crossed. And then it gets dark again, and a man comes out of nowhere and fights with him all night long. And they fight to a standstill. So we have no idea what this fight is about, where it's coming from, but a man comes and fights with him all night long. If you know the story, you may think it's an angel who fights with him, but that's not what the Bible says. Genesis says, a man came and wrestled with him all night long and then injured him and gave him sciatica, which some of you will eventually have and you won't like, and um, which is essentially pain, uh, often crippling pain in the leg. And um, then the sun started rising and the man said, I got to go. And Jacob said, dude, you attacked me and fought me all night long. Now you want to go? That's not actually what he said, but that's what he thought. But the man said to him, it's now morning, let me go. And Jacob says to him, anyone know? No. <laughs> he says, I shall not let you go unless you bless me. So who's that man? Yeah, it must be a dream of what happened all those years earlier when he got a blessing through his own initiative rather than because it was given to him. So now he's not going to let this man go unless he blesses him. So the man's going would then represent, if this is a dream, which that kind of stutter step would make sense of, that he crosses and then he doesn't cross, we can make sense of that very easily, which is that he crosses, but he's anxious, and he goes to sleep that night, and he, re he goes over it again, and he's back on the other side, and now he's going over everything. And so he dreams of getting a blessing that he had to fight for. And the man says, let me go, and he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. So what would, what would going mean for that man then? Let me go. It's morning. I have to go. If it's a dream, what would it be a dream of? What would the man be wanting in the dream? The man who's clearly his father. Where's he going to go? To heaven. Or to death. Yeah, to die. They didn't believe in heaven then. There was no concept of heaven at the time. But just to die. So it's, yes, you can die if you bless me. And that's what had happened all those years earlier. Um, so the man blesses him and says to him, your name is Jacob no longer. Now you will be named Israel rather than Jacob, for you have fought with God and hath prevailed, hast prevailed. Thou hast fought with God and hast prevailed. 
So who does that man then turn out to be? Remember in dreams, figures are always several people. No one is simply one person in a dream. If you dream of Donald Trump, you're not only dreaming of Donald Trump. You're also dreaming of whatever it is you associate him with. So who else then would that man be if he is saying to Jacob, you, your name is now the name which means defeated God in a fight. This is an easy one. Okay, you wrestle me, and I say, okay, your name is now defeated flesh in a fight. <laughs> so who am I? Right. So you defeated God in a fight. Who did he wrestle? God. So that is what the man is saying, is your name is now Israel, because Israel means defeated God. El means God. Everyone knows that? That the, that the word El, it's, it's, um, the, it's always translated in the Bible as God. So when you have names like Michael or Daniel or Raphael and so on, those are all figures of God in one way or another, the strength of God, the faith of God, etc. So Israel is striver with God. And so you strove with God and you won. So he's dreamt somehow both of his father and of God because when you dream of God, you're probably dreaming of a parent. And when you dream of a parent, there is something frightening about it as though you're dreaming of an authority figure who may not in real life still have that authority over you. But if you're dreaming, that authority is roaring back in one way or another, or you're dreaming of guilt. There are lots of things you could be dreaming of. Now remember that this dream is the night before he thinks what's about to happen. Remember Esau's marching towards him with 300 men. So what does he think is going to happen the next day? How? In battle. With yeah, in a fight. Yeah. By violence, in battle. So who else is he dreaming of? His brother. His brother. So it's an anxiety dream. And the anxiety dream is one which is just an amazing focusing of everything that has happened to him through his own fault or not through his own fault. He's dreaming of getting a blessing through demanding it when he's not entitled to it. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He is getting that blessing from his father, which is what he did. But therefore, in a funny kind of way, he is stealing the blessing from the man. And therefore, the man is also his brother in that sense. Because it's a blessing, it comes from God originally. And remember, a blessing really is this magical thing that comes from God, that's part and parcel of God. And he is anxious about battling his brother the next day. So then it goes on that he's supposed to be called Israel from here on in. And then Genesis continues. So Jacob crossed the River Jordan. And he named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. There's that L again, Peniel. He named it Peniel, which means the face of God. And he crossed the Jordan, and 
here was his brother coming towards him with 300 men and his brother embraces him and Jacob embraces him back no fight at all but absolute pure instantaneous spontaneous reconciliation and then Jacob says I have to tell you something really really amazing this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me here you are and I'm looking at your face and I can see it as clearly as though it were the face of God so what you expect him to be saying is I saw this an amazing this amazing thing happen to me last night I saw God and I saw his face as clearly as I see yours but for Jacob that's not the miracle the miracle is that he's seeing his brother's face again and that he can see his brother's face the human face what John Milton will call the human face divine that he can see the human face of his brother from whom he's been estranged for so long that's the face that blows him away not the face of God that's fine but the face of his brother and that's the moment of astonishing reconciliation so I think as I say that's um, it's relevant a lot of this is relevant to the Merchant of Venice but not all of it but I think that it's something the Merchant of Venice is partly telling you that this is a story that Shakespeare thought a lot about and I think it's extremely relevant to King Lear how many people have read King Lear um, so at the end of King Lear there is a kind of reconciliation between two estranged brothers and I think that Shakespeare is consciously and deeply echoing that story at the end of King Lear. So it's an important story. It's an important story in the Bible, but it's an important story also for Shakespeare. So the ring that Shylock is complaining about, what he hears, where do we hear about that ring? So you guys remember that it was the turquoise ring, that he had it from Leah, and he's complaining that Jessica, not only did Jessica steal it, but how does he know that Jessica stole it? Didn't she sell it? She, yeah, she traded it. Do you remember what she traded it for? A monkey. A monkey, yes. So... What he hears from Tubal is that Jessica took the ring and traded it for a monkey. And Shylock is horrified. And he says, it was my turquoise. I had it of my Leia. So notice the my ring, my Leia. And then he has the amazing line, which you could laugh at but shouldn't. And Chaser is tempting you to laugh at it and then wanting you to feel guilty that you did laugh at it. He says, I would not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. So he's saying this ring is so valuable that she traded it for a monkey. It's so valuable that I wouldn't have traded it for an entire forest full of monkeys. So notice that what he's saying there is something <laughs> sentimental which is that ring had such sentimental value that I wouldn't trade it for, I wouldn't barter it for things of far, 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 far more real value, tradable value, exchange value. I wouldn't have exchanged it for things that I could sell 
for tons and tons of money, because you could sell monkeys for money, I wouldn't have done that, because its value to me was not in the material value of the ring, but in what it represented. So who's he there by showing himself kind of better than? Well, his daughter, for sure, um, who steals all his money in order to buy herself a Christian husband. And definitely the monkey. Um, but, or you could put it this way, that, that it may be that we're seeing something about Lorenzo's motivation in marrying Jessica. Um, he likes her money. And that is also at least partly Bassania's motivation in courting Portia. The first thing he says to Antonio is if you lend me money, there is this lady in Belmont who's very rich. And if you lend me the 3,000 ducats, I will win her hand and be able to pay you back plus all the other money I owe you, which you lent me before and which I'm still in hock for. And I'll be rich myself. So both Lorenzo and Bassanio are treating women as sources of wealth. That may not be the only truth about Bassanio. It may not even be the only truth about Lorenzo, but it is clear that both Portia and Jessica are attractive in part because they're so rich, because so much money comes with them. Do you remember what why there has to be the contest for the three caskets, what set that up, that, that Portia has to have that contest? Yeah. A stipulation in her father's will. A stipulation in her father's will. What is the stipulation, do you remember? Um, that the man who picks the right casket is the one that gets to marry her, so she doesn't get to choose. Yes. Yeah, so the, so the very first thing that she says, or... In her second line is, ah, me, the word choose. I, cannot ch I can neither choose whom I will nor refuse whom I will not. So I have no choices to a husband. And then she goes on, so is the will of a living daughter ruled by the will of a dead father. So what's the pun on the word will in those lines? So it's the will of a living daughter ruled by the will of a dead father. The legal contract of a will and then the desire. Yeah, so living will is, I don't mean living will the way it's used now, but um, the will of a living person is their desire. It comes from the center of who they are. What you are is what you will, what you do freely, what you choose to do. Whereas the will of a dead father is the last will and testament that her father wrote. And so what you have there is, on the one hand, a legal document, and on the other hand, a living human being who does what she wants to do from the heart. Um, what's this paralleling? Document versus living human being. In the play. Antonio and the, like, the bond. The contract bond. Yeah. 
So there are two major contracts in The Merchant of Venice. There is Portia's father's contract, which is that you can only win Portia if you fulfill the terms of his will, which he signed and which is therefore a contract. And then there's the contract that Antonio signs leaving his a pound of flesh or giving a pound of flesh to Shylock if he fails to pay the money back on its due date. So those two contracts are clearly in parallel with each other. Now, just to think a little bit more about Shylock, the way everyone remembers this story, maybe not wrongly but also not rightly, is that Shylock tricks Antonio into putting himself in a position where he can be killed. That it's a sheer trick and that he justifies his trickery as he does the first time he talks to Antonio in Act 1, Scene 3. He says, look, this is what Jacob did to, to Laban. He, he made money through a ruse, through his own cleverness, and that's what I'm doing by lending money out at interest. It's clever of me to lend money out at interest. I'm lending money out at interest, and it's clever. And then Antonio says, no, there's total difference. For one thing, Jacob worked, and he deserved what he got. And for another thing, what he got was living creatures, ewes and rams. And he did not breed barren metal, which is the crucial phrase in the play. When did friendship ever take a breed of barren metal from his friend? How can you breed metal? Remember, that's the thing that Aristotle is also asking. How do you breed metal? Um, the answer, by the way, is you do it in a breeder reactor. That's the 20th century answer. Um, plutonium reactors will breed the very thing that they use. And it's interesting that the phrase you want to stay away from breeder reactors, by the way. They're really dangerous. Um, but that's how breeder reactors work. So, but that's not known in Shakespeare's day. So how do you breed metal? You don't. And that's what's so shocking about what Shylock is saying. So he says, okay, look, I'm offering you this money without interest and in friendship and I'll tell you what, all you have to do is pay back the actual money that I owe you with no interest. And here, we'll have a merry bond, he says. It'll be fun. That if you don't pay it back, then you'll have to give me a pound of flesh. And the question there is, what does Shylock mean by that? Now remember, he only decides to take the pound of flesh when he finds out that Jessica has eloped with Lorenzo and that all the Christians knew this plan. Then he says, well, let him look to his bond. There too I made a ma bad match, let him look to his bond. That's when he starts saying, I'm actually going to take the pound of flesh. But there's no hint before that moment that he plans ever to take the pound of flesh. So what else could he mean? Let's just finish with this now, and then it's break, and you'll all catch up over break, I know. What can he mean by asking for a pound of flesh if he doesn't plan to kill Antonio? 
So a way to answer this maybe is Shylock's not very eloquent. He is, his job, his work, his life is lending money and speaking in terms of sheer materiality. Gold and silver, metal, the most material things that they are. So when he loses his ring, which means the world to him, he's a widower, it's what remains to him of his dead wife, he says, I wouldn't trade it for a wilderness of monkeys. If he's trying, using his vocabulary, to describe the possibility of friendship, why wouldn't he say something like, if you don't pay me back, you owe me your heart? That's essentially what he's saying. But he's putting it in the only language he has, which is the language of sheer materialism. A pound of flesh, sure. And he calls it a merry bond, and he says it's friendship. And there's no reason, I don't think, to disbelieve him. But then when he gets cheated, he realizes that he can do something with what had been a Shylockian, 